Well, good evening. Welcome to Bible study. It's good to see everybody tonight. Thanks for coming. We're going to start time in prayer. That's God's blessing on it. Father, we thank you for uh, your presence. We thank you that we've gathered in the name of Jesus and you're here and you're ready to teach us. I pray that we would have an open heart and mind to receive what you want to say. I pray, God, that you would instruct us, you would inspire us. I pray, God, that we'd respond to your word tonight. Have your way in our midst. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're going to look at uh, the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 11. Aaron, could you shut the door there? Hebrews chapter 11, verse 26. If I get a volunteer to read that. He thought it was better to suffer for the Messiah than to have all the treasure of Egypt. He was waiting for the reward that God would give him. Alright, thanks for reading that. Uh, I remember reading this verse and... And uh, it was kind of curious to me because this verse is talking about Moses. And in, in the context of what it's saying, it's saying that Moses suffered shame because of Christ. Now, if you think about that, Moses lived a long time before Jesus did. You know, as for Jesus was on the earth and all that. And Moses was around, I mean, that was a long time. There's a big gap between Moses and Jesus. historically, time-wise. And so the verse struck me as kind of interesting because it was, he's saying that that Moses, and it's written in the same, it's like the same time frame here, Moses suffered shame because of Christ, or suffered reproach because of Christ or the Messiah. So I was um, kind of curious about that, and uh, so I prayed about it, and then I started looking up different sources trying to figure out, okay, well, I had some ideas when I read it as to what I believe the writer of Hebrews is trying to say. Uh, there's a, it's a technical phrasing that he's using there, and I thought, you know, that that has to mean something. In other words, it's not just one of those passing things like uh, that people say, and it's not a typical thing that you would read that's a theological norm or something. So there was something about it uh, that I really wanted to delve into, and it was the idea of how Moses could suffer shame because of Christ. How was that even possible? How did that take place? And so the first thing uh, that I want to encourage you to is to think about what happened in Moses' life. Give me a brief history of Moses. Think about it. So Moses was born at what time? What was what was bad about the time he was born? What was bad timing? They were killing the babies. Right. So he wasn't even supposed to be born. But he was. And then he wasn't supposed to live. But he did. And the way he lived is that he was floated down the river. And Pharaoh's daughter picked him up and raised him as a son of Pharaoh. So... That's how he lived, that's how he grew up. And so then, when he was a young man, what happened? 
he saw a man beating an Israelite, one of the slaves, Israelite slaves. He saw an Egyptian man beating, I believe it was an Egyptian man, beating an Israelite slave, and he became angry with that and ended up killing the, the man that was beating the slave and then had to flee. So then Moses disappears out of Egypt and he lives out in Midian or somewhere of the such with Jethro. And he has a whole nother life out there. A whole nother life he has out there. Until one day God appeared to him and spoke to him out of a burning bush. A bush that was burning that was not being consumed. And so God shared with him the plan that he had for him to go back and to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt. In other words, to, to lead them to freedom, lead them to liberty, lead them out of slavery. And so that whole story unfolds. Moses returns to Egypt. He uh, performs some signs and wonders and miracles and all these things happen. The plagues are called down. And eventually, Pharaoh lets the children of Israel go out into the wilderness and then they just keep going. And so Moses leads them through the wilderness for 40 years. And leads them to the verge of the promised land and then dies. So in that synopsis, where did he suffer shame that you can think of? Where would it occur to you that he suffered shame for the sake of Christ? And I know I didn't cover every detail, but I just want you to think about it. Like, where would you put that in there? Well, what happens when people suffer shame? What do they do? Hide. They hide. So when did Moses hide? After he killed that guy. All right. Now, he, and I don't want to talk about the shame he may have suffered for murder. That's not what I'm talking about. But something else took place when he rescued the Israelite slave. Something happened there. And in that, what happened is that he chose to identify with his people. If you think about it. Why would he care that an Israelite slave was being beaten? He was from the house of Pharaoh. If he identified as a son of Pharaoh, which is where he grew up, why would he care that an, Egypt, that, a, that an Israelite slave was being beaten? Why would that matter to him? It probably wouldn't. So there, there must have been some point in all of that that he realized where he came from, he understood where he came from, and he began, at least at some point in his life, to begin to identify with the people of Israel. And so he did something he shouldn't have done. Uh, he, he murdered somebody. Uh, he was forced to leave. And he went out way on the other side of the desert to hide. And he hid for decades out there. And had a whole family. Until God called him back. So here's the part that uh, I want you to kind of let your, let your mind 
relax here for a second. All right? Let your thinkers relax here for a second. I want you to, to hear what I have to say. And that's this. And this is going to sound weird, and I'll qualify it after I say it, but I want you to get the idea behind it. The people of Israel, in a, a, in a sense, and I'll explain what I mean by that. The people of Israel, in a sense, are the people of Christ. Why? Because their existence originated in the promise of Abraham. Right? God made a promise, made a covenant with Abraham, and their existence originates with that promise. But the promise of Abraham is the promise of Christ. That's what it is. And so in a very direct sense, the people of Israel are a part of the story of Jesus. In other words, Abraham received a promise. What was his promise? It said that the whole world will be blessed by your seed. Now, I know the people of Israel see themselves as the answer to that, but we understand that the prophecy that was given, the word that was given to Abraham was a prophecy of Jesus. That the whole world being blessed by the seed of Abraham, that Jesus is that seed. And so the whole world was blessed and is blessed by that seed that would come from him. The people of Israel served as a conduit for that blessing to take place. And so they have a part of that story. In fact, they're woven into that story because they're the very uh, conduit that God would use to go from Abraham all the way to Jesus. Now, what I don't mean by what I just said, by saying that the people of Israel are the people of Christ, I don't mean that they're magically saved somehow. All right? That's not what I'm talking about. I don't believe in the national salvation of Israel. I just don't believe in that. I, I don't, I don't subscribe to that. Some Christians do. I just don't. I think salvation is an individual decision that each of us has to make on our own to decide that we want to know Christ and invite him into our lives. It is an individual call that, that's given out to us that each of us has to answer, and I call it a discipleship. All of those things are individual things. And if you look at how God deals with us, he deals with us much of the time just strictly as individuals. In other words, we're each going to stand before the, the judgment seat of Christ. And we're going to answer for ourselves. You will answer for yourself. You will stand before God as an individual. It doesn't matter what family you come from. It doesn't matter what church you go to. It doesn't matter who your friends are or anything else. You as an individual will stand before God. You will worship Him as an individual. You will answer as an individual. He will interact with you as an individual. It is an individual prerogative, an individual decision it's also an individual responsibility to know Him, to serve Him, and to obey Him. God tells you something, and you don't do it. You know whose fault that is? That's your fault, all right? That's not my fault. You are responsible for your life. You are responsible for your decisions. 
Now, if you're a child, that's a different story. But as an adult, and it's not that I don't care about that. It's not that I don't care about you. It's not that I, I won't try to help you. It's not I won't try to even talk you into something you need to do. In fact, I'll make every effort to help you do what you need to do. But at the very end of it all, your decision is your decision. And you're responsible for it. So, I, that's not what I'm talking about. But what I am talking about is Israel's part in the promise of Christ being fulfilled. So by definition, as the conduit, they're attached to him. They are attached to him. And, and so whether or not they're aware of it, whether or not they want to be attached to him, whether or not they worship him, whether or not they believe he's God, they don't believe he's God, doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. They were attached to him from the time of Abraham all the way until the birth of Jesus, by definition. Because that is how, think about it, think about this, that's how the seed was transmitted. Physically, it was carried through people all the way to Jesus. Does that make sense to everybody? You kind of following that? All right, so. So in a real sense, they are attached to Jesus. So Moses, when he decided that he was going to identify with his people in Egypt, when he made that decision, Okay, the Bible says that he suffered shame because of Christ. Because those people are directly attached to him. Somebody, the similar language used in the Psalms. Uh, let's look up Psalm 89. Psalm 89, 50, and 51. You're going to see some similar language here. Alright. So here, you see the psalmist speaking of himself as bearing the shame, and you read what it says at the end of that, of the anointed one, or the Christ. And so this isn't something that is unique to what's said in the book of Hebrews, because you see it also in the book of Psalms. And whoever the psalmist was, we don't know who the psalmist was, Psalm 89, does it say at the top who they believe it was? Okay, whoever Ethan was, all right, the psalmist is identifying as bearing the shame of the anointed one. But of course, the psalmist is in that line, isn't he? He's in the line from Abraham to Jesus. And so he is directly connected to the anointed one. They are directly connected. <laughs> So 
So Moses attached himself to Christ through the people. And I want you to see that there's a certain amount of vision involved in this, a certain amount of faith. Where recognizing this, or, or having some awareness of it, requires vision and faith. The actual carrying of the seed didn't require that. Right? They were being used for that purpose in God's time. They were bringing about God's time, and they were being used to carry that seed from Abraham all the way down to Jesus. So all of that's taking place, but to understand the times or to understand what's going on required a certain amount of vision and a certain amount of faith. Now, how do we know that Moses had that? Well, the, the part that comes next in the verses tell us that he calculated the value of it, of identifying, of suffering the shame because of Christ. He, he, he calculated its worth to him. And the word there is a specific word used for making a calculation. Going through a thoughtful process and making a willing transaction because he determined that it was worth it. And so there, there was, that implies to us that there was a certain amount of vision and there was a certain amount of faith that Moses had. What did he know? I don't know. What did he see? I'm not sure. But he saw something. He saw something that was coming, and he knew of the prophecy. And his understanding of the prophecy could have been different than the people that uh, later on interpreted it. He may have seen that as something different. But there was a vision, there was a, a faith that was being applied to this that allowed him to make a calculation of its value. And I think sometimes we need that kind of faith and we need that kind of vision in our life because we may not always understand everything that's going on, but we need to understand maybe something that's going on. And why do I believe that? I believe that because otherwise we end up fighting against God. Now, if we make a decision to do that, that's one thing. If you make a decision to resist God, just flat out resist Him and fight against Him, that's on you, and, and you made that decision. But there are times, I think, when we're confused or we're scared that if we don't have any kind of vision, we don't have any kind of faith toward whatever it is that's causing us to be uncomfortable or whatever it is, then we may make a decision that's actually going to fight against what God's trying to do in us or through us, whatever the case may be. And so having that little bit of vision or having that little bit of faith to believe that what God is doing and what God is taking us through, what God is showing us and all those kind of things will help us to relax. Even when we don't know all the details, even when we don't know what's happening, even when the situation seems like it's out of control or whatever it is that sets off our alarm. I mean, there's been times in my life where I haven't known the full story, but I know I'm in the middle of something. And that helps. I know I'm in the midst of some kind of change. I know I'm in the midst of some kind of a, a shifting. Whatever that would be, a spiritual shifting taking place. There might have been a word that God gave that was a vague word to me, but I knew a shift was coming. And so when the shift happens, I'll freak out and start doing things that are going to hinder or prolong or work against what God's trying to do. And so some of those vague words we get, some of those things that we hear it and it doesn't quite make sense when we get the word or whatever it is. Those are the types of things I think that God uses later on 
at least for me it is, when I'm in the midst of something, I don't know what's going on. And I remember one of those words, or I remember something, and, and that speaks to me. And I says, all right, well, calm down. Don't freak out. Don't start thrashing and flailing. You know, one of the things I warn you about, uh, anybody that's had any lifeguard training or any kind of life-saving training in water, one of the things they warn you about is that when you go up to somebody who's drowning and you try to help them, they will thrash and they will knock you in the head and they will actually fight you trying to pull them to safety because they're freaking out. And they warn you about that. There's a way that you come up on people and there's a way that you take hold of people and the way that you, you try to help them. You're trying to help them despite themselves and they will drown you if they can. And you got to fight against that. Because people, when they get scared and really scared, do weird things. They say weird things. They do weird things. And... A lot of the stuff that keeps us civil, at least some of us civil, at least what used to keep people civil, however you want to see it, doesn't exist anymore when you're that afraid. And so I really believe that that as, as we look at things like this, and I think about Moses and, and, and what he suffered, what he had to suffer, and through his identification, I mean, even when he came back, you think about after he was out with Jethro and all those guys, and he came back. I mean, there was there was some suffering that would take place. I don't know if you understand anything about living in the desert, but it's not a pleasant experience. I would imagine. I've never lived in the desert. I've traveled in the desert enough to know that it's not a pleasant experience. Forty years. Forty years. Not to mention all the battles, not to mention going hungry, not to mention all of the the thirst that they had, and all the things that happened, the rebellions that took place, the ground opening up, swallowing people, fire coming down, snakes biting people, whatever happened out there. But all of that was a result of the decision that he made to follow after what God said and to identify himself with those people. Right? It all started the day he killed that guy. But then a, a decision was made, a rational, level-headed decision was made in response to a supernatural revelation and word from God that he would go back and he would lead those people out of Egypt. But he knew there was something more. He knew it. And, and there is enough of, of the prophecies that he gave. There's enough of it that we can understand that there was something more. And so he thought it through. He processed it in his brain. And, and, he, and he came to a willing transaction. And he said, all right, the reproach is worth it. The shame, whatever it is, it's worth it. I was reading something. They gave an example of this. It's a, you know, reproach isn't desirable. That we don't go out looking for reproach. We don't look for that. And that's not the desirable part. They give an example of something I was reading. They talked about like scars on an old soldier. You know, somebody that had, he had received those scars in defending his country and all of that. Well, to, to that guy, those scars may have more value than his pension does. Because they represent 
something to him of more value. So he he will look at those, he'll treasure those even more than he does whatever comes in the mail once a month. But nobody goes out to get scars, well, mostly. I mean, there is scarring, and there's a you know, way people do that stuff, but I don't know. I don't know if that's healthy. I don't know if that's any healthy thinking with that. But uh, but I, I know that, you know, even, like, I didn't get scars from doing stuff like that. But, you know, I look at some of the scars on me, and I, I just remember things. I didn't set out to get a scar. But there's some pretty funny stories behind some of the scars I have on me. Some crazy stuff, too. But, you know, I didn't set out to do that. But they're there now. Was it worth it? Some of it was. Totally worth it. And I can calculate it out and be like, yep, totally worth it. Some of it was just stupid. Though. So uh, somebody look up First Peter 4. First Peter 4, 13 and 14. First Peter four, thirteen and fourteen. Rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Alright, so somehow Moses had some kind of revelation, right? That we're we're told directly, I mean, this is after Jesus, Peter writing this. And so we're told directly that that's a good thing. When you suffer for Jesus, that's a good thing, and you should feel good about that, and you should recognize that that's opportunity and that there's glory in that and all the rest of the stuff that he says there. So, I mean, we can see that. And and he's telling them that, and he's giving them that kind of information. So you've got that word from Peter to us, but somehow Moses had a hold of that. Now, do you see the exchange, though? Do you see the calculated exchange that Peter's making there? Of of the suffering, which you're not setting out to find suffering. You're not setting out to find reproach. You're not setting out to find somebody to make fun of you. But as it happens, it's worth, it, there's great value to it. In other words, you can calculate the value. And it, you calculate in terms of future, the, the glory of Jesus and all the rest of that stuff that he mentions in there. So there's a way to calculate, there's a way to see it, and there's a way to attach some kind of a a value to it. In fact, Moses determined that it was better than the riches of Egypt. Well, what were the riches of Egypt tied up in? Slavery. It was tied up, he made the decision that he was going to identify with his people, but the riches of Egypt had been built, much of them had been built on the backs of, of his people. And so he wasn't willing to abide with that. So he made that decision. And so you think about Moses could have just stayed in the house of Pharaoh. He could have stayed there and he would have grown up in there and he had stood to receive a sizable inheritance by doing what? Nothing. He didn't have to do anything. All he had to do was sit there. Do nothing. Just be rich. All right? 
Just be rich and just sit there and stay there. And if you stay there long enough, they were going to hand him big gobs of money and riches and whatever stuff they traded in back then. He would have had power and riches and respect and honor and all of those things. And so part of the calculation is, well, okay, if I do nothing, I'm going to be rich and I'm going to be powerful. That's part of the calculation. But in his calculation, he said, but if I take action, if I identify with these people, it's got to be worth more than what he could have just waited for. Right? So and he made the calculation. He says, yep, that's what it is. So in the Greek, there's a, a little phrase used in there when it talks about all the riches of Egypt and Moses saying it was better than what identifying with Jesus would be. And so in the Greek it said he looked away from what he left. And the idea behind that is looking away from what you leave is a matter of habit. Making it your habit not to look back at what you've left. Now some of you, when you needed to hear that probably a few years ago when you first came to know Jesus. Just don't keep looking back. And Moses made it his habit not to do that. A lot of us, as we mature, we just naturally don't. We come to some kind of a, a some kind of rest in our own hearts and minds about what we left as being bad for us or, or being something that we don't ever want to return to. Think of it more like dog and vomit than we do things are awesome in Egypt kind of thing. And so he made it his habit not to look back at that not to look at what could have been because he had made a different decision. And so by making a different decision, the other part of that phrase in the Greek, as it was translated into Greek from the Old Testament, it says that Moses looked away from what he left, but then the other side of that is that he fixed his eye forward. So it's a, it's a two-step process that is described in that little verse there. It says it's a looking away, number one, but it's a fixing of your eye on something else is the second part of it, which I think is important. I think it's important to look away, but I also think it's important to, to have something to fix your eye on moving forward, moving ahead, moving together, whatever God's doing and, and whatever Jesus has for you. And so, so he looked ahead. So I look at Hebrews 10.35. Therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has to be great. Read uh, 34 and 36 too. For you had compassion on those in prison, and joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves have a better possession than the biting ones. Therefore do not throw away your confidence, as a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Alright. So the verse there just talks about, and to me it talks about, really keeping in mind what the end game is of what we're doing what it does to me is it, it tells us to fix our eyes on something else there was a an old 
I remember an old sermon that I read. Because by the time I was alive, this guy was dead a long time before. But I read a sermon uh, by a guy by the name of George Whitfield. And I, I've spoken on this before, but he talked about uh, that he wished that people could get the word eternity stamped on their eyeball. So that whatever they looked at, they would look at, they'd see that word eternity kind of over the top of everything else that they were looking at. In other words, we, we tend to wander in our, what we're doing, you know, and we lose perspective. And really it was just a word about perspective and keeping our perspective is that there's an eternal nature to our lives. I was talking about this before. There's an eternal nature to our lives and we need to somehow maintain that perspective. Because if you're only thinking about today, or we're only thinking about this moment, or we're only thinking about this second, we're going to make a much different decision than if we're thinking toward the future, if we're thinking toward eternity, we're thinking toward the, the things that are of the Spirit. Because our bodies cry out for whatever our bodies cry out for. Brownies? I mean, they cry out, you know, for whatever it is. I don't even know. And in the moment... It seems like, well, that's a really good idea. You know, it's a big plate of brownies there. That's a really good idea. But if we could get past that immediate perspective, like that, that second that we're in and have something bigger in mind, something better in mind, we may not pick that thing up and eat it. You know, and apply that to whatever you want, cause whatever, we all got our own brownies in our life. But that, <laughs> if you know what I'm saying, but you know, you look at that. And and we got to get out of the moment. But part of living outside the moment in that one little moment is to have a bigger perspective of things. To 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 be something to have something larger. You know, and I've heard people talk about mental illness and and some and much of mental illness that I've heard people talk about. And and this is Christians, non Christians, whoever. They, they simplify it down to people get stuck in a moment and they can't get out. Whether they're talking about depression, they're talking about whatever they're talking about. If there's a moment in a person's life that is so traumatic, a moment in their life that affects them so harshly, a moment in their life that is so powerful that they can't shake out of it. And so they live and they dwell in that moment. Everybody's out to get me. Why? Because somebody got me one time. And they can't get out of that moment, so everybody's out to get them. Everybody's mean. Why? Because somebody was mean to me in that moment, and I can't get out of that moment, so everybody's mean. I don't talk to anybody because everybody's mean. They're going to make fun of me. Why? Because somebody made fun of me when I was six. And I know that sounds silly, but it's so, it affects us whether we realize it or not. And it's getting out of those moments that that has to happen. And so whether it's a moment of temptation, whether it's a moment of whatever it is, trauma, and I'm not trying to trivialize that at all. I'm just saying that those moments are moments that somehow we need some way to have a bigger picture of what's really going on. Because... That one person that was mean to us or that one person that made fun of us, there's been thousands who haven't. 
thousands who, who've been nice to us, thousands who've, who've spoken kind words to us, thousands who've not made fun of us. And yet we can't hear that. We can't see it. We can't receive it, even though it's being reinforced a thousand times because we're in a moment with just one person in one instance, and that's going to dominate the rest of our lives unless we can crawl out of it. And I just picked that at random. It could be anything. It really could. But there's a bigger perspective that God wants us to have. He gives us the tool of forgiveness and He pours out grace and mercy in our lives so we can forgive people from those moments. We can let them go. He gives us the the, the grace to, to look forward and to leave behind the things that are behind us and fix our eyes on things that are in front of us like Moses was doing. And move forward. I mean, again, Moses fled Egypt. Why? Because he was a murderer. He came back to Egypt to free his people. Alright, so something had to happen in his life where he stopped looking at that murder. And he began to look forward. And he began to see forward and fixed his eyes on something else. There was a faith, there was a vision that was released into him for something bigger and something beyond the moment that he had crawled out of way back when that allowed him to even go back to where he came from, to go back to the scene of the crime. But as a different man, as a different person, with his eyes fixed on something completely different and to lead those people out and to set them free. Something happened. And whatever that something is, you, you see the hints of that in Hebrews 10.35. You see the hints of that in 1 Peter 4.13 and 14. When those verses begin to talk to us as New Testament believers after Jesus. Not to allow our eyes to get fixed on anyone or anything except for Him. And if we had eternity on our eyeball, we would be making different decisions than we make. It just ha- would happen. Because our perspective, hopefully, would be a little bit bigger than it is right now. Where do you see Jesus and Moses together? Yeah, turn to Matthew 17. The Transfiguration. Matthew 17. Now I think it's interesting that Moses is, is, is there. And he's speaking with Jesus. And I'm hoping that this helps us to, to kind of put this together a little bit in our heads. So Matthew chapter 17, verses 1 through 13. Anybody want to start reading that and I'll stop you when I need to? After six days, Jesus took him with Peter, James, and James, the brother of James, and led them up the high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as the light. Just then, there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I'll put up three shackles, one for you, one for Moses, 
Hang on just a second. Okay. What I want, think about that, that scene. You got disciples are witnessing it. There's three of them there. You have Jesus, and then you have Moses, and you have Elijah. All right, and there, you can draw any significance about that. Uh, people will draw significance of Moses represents the law, Elijah represents the prophets, and you've got the law and the prophets and Jesus all together, whatever you want to say about that. But what I want you to get out of this is more on a personal level, not a theological level. I want you to see Moses. Here's a guy that suffered shame, according to Hebrews 11.26, suffered shame because of Christ. And he lived thousands of years before Jesus. But he chose to identify with the people. He made that decision. And that decision was made in faith. That decision was made in vision. It was made and he calculated and he said it's totally worth it. Greater than any riches that I could ever get in Egypt. Greater than anything I could ever do. Totally worth it. Made his decision and identified with Christ. I think it's interesting that at the transfiguration, he's one of the people that are there with him. Because he made a decision how many years before? Thousands. Thousands of years prior to Jesus, he made a decision to identify with him. And here he was talking to him on a mountain. I think that's powerful. And I, I think it, it brings home to us what that actually means. Because I think sometimes we think of like vision, things like vision, or we think about the prophetic word, or we think about stuff that God shows us as being, I don't even know what, like less than tangible in our minds. And yet you see something here that's really tangible, that you have an account here of a guy who made a decision nobody else could see. Nobody else was looking at Jesus. Moses was. He was identifying with, with the people of Israel. He was identifying with the people of Christ. He suffered shame for that. And so he made his decision for, for the, the, for, for identifying with Christ. He made that decision in faith, in vision. Well, how real is that? Well, it changed his life. It changed the lives of the people around him. The people of Israel went free and began their trek across the wilderness. He got them to the promised land for 40 years in the wilderness. I mean, there were tangible results immediately in the physical realm, but how tangible is the fact that he's standing with Jesus talking to him thousands of years later? That's real. It's not just real in that moment, which you can think about, okay, all those great things happened through his life, but it's real all the way into eternity. It wasn't just a change of attitude. There was a reality to the decision that he made. And he actually identified with him. He actually suffered shame for him. And he actually stood and talked to him. A couple thousand years later. But he's there. He's there. And I would imagine that was as real as him standing and talking to Aaron. Or Miriam. Or Jethro. I would imagine. So, what's more real? Nothing's more real. And that's the point I'm trying to make. 
You can't draw, or you, we should try, endeavor not to draw those distinctions. What's more real? The fact that he was talking to Jethro, Miriam, and Aaron, or the fact he was talking to Jesus a couple thousand years later on the Mount of Transfiguration, which is more real? They're both real. They're both real. One is existing outside of the span of our physical life, but that doesn't make it not real. And somehow we got to get a hold of that in our minds, our hearts. He operated his physical life based on a vision, based on a call, based on a purpose that was a thousand years in the future, more thousands of years in the future. Changed the course of his life. He followed a call. He suffered shame that, that Jesus wouldn't be physically born for a long time. But it changed the course of his life and it changed the course of a nation. Because of that. What was real? It all was. It all was real. And, and his part in that, his place in that, was just as real when they were walking down through the wilderness as it was when he's standing on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus. Just as real. Just his, as much his life as it was then, as it was then. Just as much his life. So, somehow, if we can get a hold of that, again, eternity. What about what we're doing now? Maybe it's more than just today. Maybe it's more than just tomorrow. Maybe it's more than just even the span of our lives. We don't know. We don't know. And the issue isn't whether we know that or not. The issue isn't whether we have a full revelation of that or a full understanding of it. It's getting that little bit of vision. It's getting that, applying that little bit of faith to it. It's holding on to what God is saying to us and it's moving forward in what He's shown us. That's what it is. We make the decision to identify. And then as, as Peter said, that verse that Aaron read in 1 Peter 14, I want you to think about that. It says, it talks about future glory. Isn't that what Moses experienced? Through his identification with Christ, he identified with him thousands of years before, but then stood in future glory, which was in the moment for Peter, James, and John. That was their present. For Moses, that was future glory. Standing on that mountain with Elijah, who he wouldn't even know, because he came later. But I'm sure he knew him then. But standing in glory with Jesus, there it was. Just like 1 Peter 4, 13 and 14 says. You see it played out through the life of Moses. So we have an example of this. We have a person that played this out in their life. And you see it from the past perspective all the way to what would have been when it was the New Testament was written to the present perspective. That's what future glory looks like, at least to them. Okay, we've got some verses to look up. Are you ready? John chapter 1 and verse 10. John 1.10. Right. Jesus was in the world. Where? 
Where? We know that if you go down to verse 14, the Word is made flesh, dwelt among us, would be held His glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. But in verse 10, where is He? He's in the world. People didn't recognize Him. Well, where was He? What was He doing? I don't know. He was in Israel, wasn't He? In the nation. Remember we talked about that? He was physically being passed down through Israel as a conduit from Abraham to all the way to Joseph, supposedly, and Mary. Alright? So he was being passed down all the way to Joseph and Mary. Mary in particular, I guess, genetically. So he was in their midst. They weren't going to recognize him though, right? No. No. But he was there. You know, other people think this verse refers to Theophanies, that Jesus appeared sometimes. Like, and you remember uh, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, right? In the book of Daniel, they're in, they're, they're in Babylon, and they get thrown into the fiery furnace. And, and so everybody's looking in there, like people, people died throwing them in, the furnace was so hot. And then they get all thrown in there, and uh, they're looking down into the furnace, they're looking in there, and they say, oh, they're, they're in there. They're still moving around. They're still alive. And then it said that there was a fourth person in there with him. With him. Who was that? I don't know. Could be verse 10 of John 1. I don't know. It could have been. It really, I mean, it could have been. And there are times when the angel of the Lord appears that people will interpret that as being a, a, a manifestation of the word, a manifestation of the future Jesus. Other people say, you know, you look at the, the burning bush and the voice that came out of there and the presence that was there, that there was an angel of the Lord and that that was a physical manifestation of the future Jesus. I don't know. I have an idea. But all we know is that he was in the world, but we didn't recognize it. Nobody recognized it. And what's funny about that is if you think about it, I was just talking to somebody about this today. If Jesus was around now, who would recognize him? He'd probably be arrested for vagrancy. <laughs> oh, yeah, they don't do that anymore. Yeah, But, I mean, you know, would we recognize him? He doesn't bear the same... Uh, charisma that we know of as most of our famous religious leaders. He doesn't have the, the style, right? He doesn't look like that. He doesn't sound like that. Probably from what we understand from the scriptures, he, he really doesn't fit the bill. So how would we know that this is the founder of our faith? How would we know this is the guy? It'd be hard, I think, for a lot of people to recognize him, even now. So he was in the world, but the world didn't recognize him. A few more verses. Colossians one twenty four. Colossians one twenty four. We might be able to identify him through scars on his hands and his side. Maybe. Maybe. In his glorified body. Colossians one twenty four. Alright, so Paul 
and and I don't want to get too far in this because we're about out of time, but Paul here is making an identification with the church as being the body of Christ. Physically, on the earth right now. And so he's identifying with the body of Christ as the church and saying that the afflictions, the suffering, whatever he is bringing into his physical body. Now, what do we know about Paul? He was in shipwrecks. He was beaten with rods. He was lashed. We know that. He was stoned. We know that. You know he was at least bitten by a poisonous snake one time. The guy, you know, obviously suffered. And there's plenty of suffering probably in his physical body. I would imagine as he got older, unless God did some kind of a supernatural miracle, like with arthritis and stuff, that guy must have had some issues. I mean, you get bones breaking, and you get beaten like he was beaten. You know, you got to imagine. All right, so he bore in his body things. Why? Because he was preaching the gospel. Why? Because he was building up the church. Why? He was trying to reach people for Jesus. And so he identifies with the body of Christ and suffering. First Peter one eleven. Trying to find out the time and the circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. I read above that. Concerning the salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time. All right. So, the prophets, in other words, what are we talking about? What are we talking about? We're talking about vision, and we're talking about faith. And, and what that verse describes are people that had fixed their eyes on Jesus. They didn't know when. They didn't know how exactly, but they fixed their eyes on something beyond their circumstance and something beyond their daily routine. In other words, they, they looked ahead, not having all the answers, not even knowing what all the questions were. But they had enough faith, they had enough sense, spiritual sense about them, enough vision about them to know that they needed to be looking beyond where they were. And they did. They did. They looked beyond that spot and they looked ahead. And they could see something else. Okay, one more quick one. Psalm 69 9. Alright. Now, where do you know that verse from? Where else do you know that verse from? You know? Where? Where was that, where was that said about Jesus? You remember? When he cleansed the temple. Okay, and they, somebody said it, and it was said about him that zeal for your house has consumed me. But that was, who was that saying that in the psalm, David? Yeah. 
So David was speaking of himself. Right? He was talking about himself. And he's like, zeal for your house, God, has consumed me. And, and he was suffering for it, but really it, not even meaning it in the sense of anybody during that time reading that would have read that as David is talking about himself. And yet that verse was applied way ahead to Jesus. And so David had suffered, zeal for his father's house, he had suffered, but Jesus is going to suffer. All right, so I, what I'm trying to tell you, and I guess what I'm trying, the point I'm trying to get across, is that we have a real-life example in, through Moses of this. And we could take other examples. It's just the Moses example is laid out for us. It's spoken of. It's written about. And so we have a real-life example of Moses actually living a life of vision, living a life of faith, of suffering for that, and then of future glory standing with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. We got the whole story there as an example for us. But then you see people like David suffering. You, you see that in the scripture, but he's suffering for the sake of his seed, one that would come after him, see, because David was part of that conduit. He's part of that conduit leading to Jesus. And so, in a real sense, Jesus was there too. And so David's saying, I, I do this, and then his quote being quoted in the New Testament for Jesus makes perfect sense because Jesus was there too. Jesus was there when, when David said that. Or who we would know as Jesus. The word was there. Alright? And so, that makes sense. Or then you see someone like Paul identifying with, instead of like Moses identified with the children of Israel, Paul identifies with the physical body of Christ on the earth, the church he identifies with. Suffering. For what? Future glory. He had something bigger, something greater, something grander in his heart, his mind. He could see something bigger than just his circumstance or what was going on in front of him. Kept him going. Helped him make better decisions. Bigger decisions in life than what would have been expedient in the moment. And I think that's what God calls us to. But you can't do that unless you know there's something bigger. You can't do that unless you know that there's vision that God wants to give us, that there's, there's purpose that God wants to put in us and into our lives, that there's more to it that we can apply a little bit of faith to and look beyond the moment. What does future glory look like? I don't know. I, I see the Mount of Transfiguration. That was future glory for Moses. There might be even more for him. I don't have any idea. But that's something we glimpsed into because we had the opportunity to see it. So standing there talking to Jesus, I mean, wow. He suffered for Christ's sake and then stood with him. So we needed some kind of bigger perspective for our lives. Something more than just, all right, well, you know, just today. Or I'm getting tired. Or I'm getting bored. Or I, I'm sick of this. Or I think that's stupid. Or I'm tired of whatever it is. Really? Seriously? Seriously. There's not a bigger way to see things than that? That's it? 
Yeah, alright. I pray we can grab hold of something. I really do. I pray we can grab hold of a bigger vision, a bigger picture that's in front of us. And I want to pray for you right now. I want to pray God pours out a, a bigger picture for you and a bigger vision. And just ask Him to just to fill our hearts and fill our minds with something more. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just thank you that you're a God of vision. Uh, your word says that you do nothing without revealing it to your servants, the prophets. And so I thank you that you pour out vision, you pour out your word, that God, there is revelation and there is understanding in you, that your word is full of it, of, of all those things, of vision, of, of purpose, of plan, but that you have something for each of us. And I pray, God, that you would pour out your vision into my heart, my mind, my life, that you pour out your vision into each of our hearts, each of our minds, each of our lives, God. And I pray that as you begin to pour your vision out toward something more, something bigger, something better, that we can apply some faith to that. That we don't just walk around with our our head down, just watching one step in front of the other, but we can see something beyond that, something bigger, and something more glorious. We have chosen to identify with Jesus. We have chosen to identify with the living body of Christ. And whatever it is that we're going to suffer, whatever it is that we're going to receive any kind of of suffering or pain or judgment or shame or whatever it is. God, I pray that we can keep our eyes fixed with that little bit of faith on something much bigger and something much better that goes way beyond the moment we find ourselves in today. So God, I pray that if we're bored, you help us. I pray if we are lonely, you help us. I pray, God, if we're frustrated, you help us. I pray, God, if we're angry with somebody, you help us. Because I ask you, God, that we could get out of whatever moment we find ourselves in, moving towards something bigger, something grander, something greater that lies in front of us. I pray you teach us what it means to look away from the past and fix our eyes, to fix our eyes, to fix our eyes on something better. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thanks for coming, everybody. It's good to see you.